The first week of December here in the capital region brings the celebration of Hanukkah for local Jewish families, the beginning of Advent for Christians, and unfortunately, news of the concerning new coronavirus variant Omicron in New York. Coming up on this episode of The Eagle, State Attorney General Letitia James dropped a trove of transcripts, text messages, and video testimony from her investigation into alleged misconduct by former Governor Andrew Cuomo. We'll give you the highlights. Melatris is saying, you know, F her, although he's using the full the full expletive. We'll talk to Chris Arnotti, an author and photographer with a massive social media following, who documents his long walks through American cities. We'll discuss his recent stroll through Albany. There, there is still a lot of warmth and still a lot of wonderful neighborhoods in, in Albany, but it, to me, that that downtown just kind of dominate so much. And we'll get into the holiday spirit with dining critic Susie Davidson-Powell. And by spirit, I mean we'll talk about fun holiday cocktails, both with alcohol and non-alcoholic. You might want to try this holiday season. I'm an old-fashioned girl. I really love a good old-fashioned. This is The Eagle, a Times Union podcast, a look inside our newsroom. I'm Jessica Marshall. If you're enjoying this podcast, take advantage of all the Times Union has to offer and support our efforts to bring in you award-winning journalism by becoming a Times Union member today. Go to timesunion.com slash subscribe. Welcome to The Eagle. I'm Jessica Marshall. Last week, we talked about the New York State Assembly's damning investigative report into former Governor Andrew Cuomo's alleged misconduct. This week, we're diving into the massive cache of transcripts and video testimony released by State Attorney General Letitia James from her investigation. That includes video testimony from the former governor, the secretary to the governor, Melissa DeRosa, the governor's brother, Chris Cuomo, several of the victims accusing the former governor of sexual harassment, and more, much, much more. For some of the highlights and the rapidly developing consequences, I'm going to toss it over to Times Union Editor-in-Chief Casey Seiler, Capitol Bureau Managing Editor Brendan Lyons, and Education Reporter Rachel Silberstein. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union, and I'm happy to be joined by Brendan Lyons, our managing editor for investigations and our Capitol Bureau chief, and Rachel Silberstein, our outstanding education reporter. We're here to talk about a very large document dump from the office of Attorney General Letitia James that arrived on Monday, including transcripts and video, as well as exhibits connected to each of those interviews with some of the additional witnesses in the AG's investigation of the sexual misconduct allegations made against former Governor Andrew Cuomo, the ones that resulted in the AG's early August report that prompted the governor's decision to resign later that month. So, Brendan, I'll I'll turn to you for kind of the overview. What did we learn from these transcripts and uh, the evidence that was attached to them? One thing we learned was the depths to which this administration and and Cuomo's closest confidants had gone to try to rescue him from all of these allegations. 
some of the information that jumped out to me confirms what we had known for quite some time, which is that this administration and, and his inner circle has engaged in a pattern through the years of deleting evidence, of deleting information. Beth Garvey, a former counsel in the chamber, in her testimony that was released, had talked about the chamber issued iPhones had been delivered to all of them with automatic deletion of text messages after 30 days. And it became an issue in March when the attorney general was tasked with hiring a law firm to investigate these matters. And as subpoenas started coming in, that's when some of the lawyers and others realized the the issues with the fact that the cell phones were set up to delete messages. The other one that jumped out, of course, was Chris Cuomo's testimony. When, When the transcripts were released, his was the first that I went to. One, I wanted to see if he would be asked about the preferential COVID testing that he received. He, he was not asked about that, which was, which was interesting. But he also talked about deleting messages and his practice of deleting emails because his defense was that, well, maybe I would be hacked and therefore somebody could get that information. Well, that raises the question, what do you have to hide in your texts and emails? And two, that argument sort of fell apart or that defense did when he conceded or he was confronted with the fact that at the end of a text exchange with Melissa DeRosa about the groping allegation that was revealed on March 9th, he suggested to Melissa that she delete the thread that they had just uh, created. Maybe he was just being thoughtful that he was worried that she might get hacked too. You never yes, know. indeed. And then, of course, subsequently, Chris Cuomo, the day after this document dump, CNN, which had been under pressure to take some kind of action, announced that he was going to be suspended indefinitely as they continued to take a close look at this material. It'll be surprising if if he survives this. It was understandable that a brother would want to go to the aid of a brother, right, to, to help family get through an ordeal. There were two things, though. One, he wasn't fully transparent with his employer about the depths of his involvement in this and also that he had used his journalistic experience, his journalism contacts to try to gather information to help them about when stories were going to be published or who might be coming forward next. Those are the sorts of things that I believe are going to get him in a position where it might be difficult to come back. If he wanted to do that stuff, he would have been wise maybe to take a leave of absence from CNN to help his brother. But at this point, it is quite a devastating blow to the Cuomo family right now. So, Rachel, turning to you, somebody who remains on the job um, for reasons we can get into is SUNY Chancellor Jim Malatris, a former close aide to the governor, his former state operations director, who then kind of redirected his career into SUNY. He was the head of the Rockefeller Institute and then SUNY Empire. And then in the summer of 2020, really promoted by the governor and the governor's loyalists, he was selected by the SUNY Board of Trustees as the chancellor. Now, as part of this document dump, old texts, texts from the spring and summer of 2019 were released. And why don't you explain what they revealed? Well, let's backtrack. Lindsay Boylan, one of the governor's, the governor's first accuser, which sort of set off this investigation and, you know, triggered 10 more people to come forward. She resigned from her job 
at the executive chamber in 2018. Um, at the time, you know, apparently on bad terms. And at the time, then counsel to the governor, Alfonso David, created a file on her, apparently like as a preemptive measure. Um, so in 2019, she started tweeting about her work environment, in particular, her experience as a mother of young children working in the chamber, and said, described the governor's office as a, a difficult work environment, um, which, of course, caught the attention of members of the governor's inner circle, you know, including Malatras, who, though he no longer worked in the chamber, he was CC'd on all of these text messages. So... I think these documents sort of show that he uh, was part of this group of close Cuomo confidants who had been talking about how to leverage and maybe weaponize this file that they had on Lindsey Boylan. Some of these tweets are just not very flattering. Um, So he inevitably puts out his own tweet, um, which talks about his own experience as a parent on the second floor, which doesn't address her directly but clearly was directed at her. And he sort of characterized the tweet as just like a disagreement between colleagues. But the text messages that were revealed in this latest document dump sort of uh, tell a different story. Basically, what he describes as sort of a dispute between colleagues was really his sort of public-facing expressions on Twitter of, oh, you know, I think that the executive chamber is a great place to work. Meanwhile, internally, what you're getting is this almost high schoolish exchange of notes between the governor's inner circle in which Malatris is saying, you know, F her, although he's using the full, the full expletive and suggesting that they might want to put out some of her emails, which he describes as cray, which of course is slang for, for crazy. Now he wasn't SUNY chancellor at the time. This is, this is a year before he becomes SUNY chancellor, a year and a half before Lindsay Boylan makes these, these statements. It's worth noting, as you have reported so lucidly, that Malatris is also involved in two other uh, more recent Cuomo scandals. He was one of the people who reviewed the self-exonerating DOH report on deaths of COVID patients in nursing homes. And he also is one of the, the senior staffers who did work on the governor's COVID memoir, Um, He claims it was voluntary. Whether or not it was is very much in dispute. Now, I guess my question for you is, what are the chances, considering all of this controversy that is now swirling around Jim Malatris, what stands in the way of Governor Kathy Hochul or the, uh, the SUNY Board of Trustees deciding that it might be time for him no longer to be the one leading the system? So Kathy Hochul has been pretty clear that anyone who was implicated in, you know, wrongdoing associated with the sexual harassment claims uh, would be removed from her administration. Malatris is not technically in her administration, and his job is filled by the SUNY Board of Trustees. And so she has limited power over them. I do think that there is increased pressure for them pressure continues to mount with each of these subsequent scandals. But these text messages, well, they're not flattering, obviously. I should point out that he's not implicated in the inevitable. What these text messages really do is they demonstrate that administrations had created a file in Boylan like two years prior and had talked about weaponizing it 
but they only acted on it once she made her more serious allegations of sexual harassment by the governor. Um, so Melissa DeRosa and other top Cuomo officials had justified the release of her file because they said they had to counter her repeated statements online that they say inaccurately characterized her experience on the second floor. So essentially, the 2019 text messages were just used to show that the administration had been sitting on this file that had been compiled to discredit her narrative for two years, but they didn't release it until the sexual harassment claims. And by December 2020, when she claimed that she was sexually harassed by the governor, Milatros was then chancellor, and there's no indication that he was part of those conversations that the AG later deemed as unlawful retaliation. There's no indication that he was involved in the actual files release. He just talked about it earlier on. People have disagreements in high-stress jobs. Um, I should have used different language. It's a long time ago. I got to focus on suing all the things he's doing. We should note that Malatris, who was uh, testifying before a legislative hearing on Tuesday, was questioned by reporters. The truth is, I'm not proud of the language that I used. Um, I conveyed the use, uh, conveyed my disagreement about my colleague, but I'm proud of my collaborative work in government. I've been government a long time. I'm proud of my work at SUNY. We got a lot of work to do. That's going to be my focus. Brendan, are there more shoes to drop, um, more witness transcripts that are going to be rolled out by the AG's office? And I guess my question is, what are the ones where the the categories that you're still very interested in, in reading when they pop out? For me, I am extremely interested in reading the testimony of the state police protective detail members who were interviewed, including Vincent Strafach, who had been the longtime head of that unit under Cuomo and had a very close and loyal relationship to the governor, and who had left, by the way, at the as this as this situation, this controversy began to erupt. Strafach re- retired a little bit early, it seemed, from the state police and exited stage right. But those, I think, could really be very revealing in terms of the governor's interaction with female staffers, trips to Jamaica, all those sorts of things. I, It is the, uh, the King's Guard. It would be interesting to see what those transcripts, and it'll be something if they don't release those. I'm not sure what the justification would be if they've gone this far in this sort of unprecedented document release. Well, uh, Christmas is a coming, as they say, as well as Hanukkah. Rachel, Brendan, thank you very much for all the good work, and uh, please keep it up. Thank you. You bet. Uh, No more questions from us, Governor. Thank you for your time. I would like to say it was a pleasure, Mr. Kim. (laughs) But I'm on the road. You can read more about the fallout from the Attorney General's release of information and other statehouse news in the Capital Confidential section of TimesUnion.com. All right, next up, Hudson Valley-based photographer and author Chris Arnotti does a lot of walking these days. And that very activity has of late gained him a substantial social media following. The author of Dignity, Seeking Respect in Back Row America, regularly documents his long walks through America's cities to almost 90,000 Twitter followers. Through photos and frank observations of what he encounters in real time during his perambulations, he offers a unique person-on-the-street perspective that's often equal parts bleak and hopeful. 
He also writes about it on his Substack. And he recently came to Albany to take a walk. Times Union columnist Chris Churchill caught up with him to find out more about his thoughts on New York's capital city. So the reason we're talking to you today is because you've been you've been walking in our in our area. Have you done is it three three walks to this point or is it four? In terms of this series, I've done three three long walks through Albany, Albany Troy area metro region. What are your impressions of Albany? There's a lot of themes that are grand themes that are you you know in all the cities. Sometimes when I'm walking, I kind of focus on one of those themes. And what really struck me about Albany was, you know, kind of two things. It's the first time I've written two pieces, and I wrote two pieces about the region. One was a kind of inequality. It's kind of jarring um, just, you know, when you're downtown and then you're immediately north or south of downtown and you're in poor, poor black neighborhoods um, that are, are, you know, three or four blocks from, from the capital. Yeah. That, that sort of jarring inequality is true in every city. I've been in, you know, when you walk 20 miles through a city, you're, because the U.S. is unequal, you see that play out. But, but in Albany, there was just something about how how it plays out against the pol- political class. That's, you know, the downtown. And then the downtown itself, the kind of Empire State Plaza kind of was the focus of my second piece. Because, again, another theme that plays out in all my walks is kind of urban renewal and kind of what I would call kind of city planners playing Sim City. And, yeah. and, and, you, and you can see the ramifications at the street level. And that's kind of what a lot of what the city, the focus of the project is about is like, what's it mean to be a pedestrian? What's it mean to be a resident? And being a pedestrian is in some senses feels, you know, closest approximation you can get to be a resident. Look, I, I like Albany in the sense that I go there a lot. And I, I really think it's a very warm town and, uh, you know, in a, in a very uh, interesting town. But that downtown area just kind of, really sucks the soul out of so much of the city. It kind of dominates everything. You know, my first walk was a big loop, basically from downtown to the university and then back again, you know, having having to avoid basically Empire State Plaza because uh, it's really not, you can't walk through it. It's kind of dead. Then I went back and did another walk where I walked more around it. And then I walked again from Empire State Plaza up to Troy and, and, and through Waterville And I can't pronounce that city across from Troy. Cohoes, oh, Cohoes, yeah, yeah, Cohoes, yeah, Cohoes. Yeah. But the, the contrast between like Watervliet, Cohoes, and Troy, and then downtown, you know, Albany is just kind of jarring as well. Yeah, I think you and I share an appreciation for Watervliet. I, I I really enjoyed your writing about it, and I I think it's a great kind of underappreciated city. And I also I thought too that you were really fair to Albany. I mean, I think you you captured it well. It is it is kind of a strange mix of these kind of dead zones or bureaucratic dead zones with some really charming old neighborhoods. And they're often so close together that it, that it is a little bit like, wow, what, what happened here exactly? Right on the edges, there, there is still a lot of warmth and there's still a lot of wonderful neighborhoods in, in Albany. But it, it, to me, that, that downtown just kind of dominates so much. Yeah, I think, I think and I'm, I'm from elsewhere too, I think people who are from here somehow sometimes don't understand or don't see how distinctive it can be. I mean, Empire State Plaza is just this like bizarre, fascinating moonscape in a way. And you know, I think I think that you did you did really well in capturing some of the some of the ideology, I guess is maybe the word behind it. You know, the, the thinking that went into to wiping away you know real neighborhoods where people lived and breathed and, and laughed, and kind of replacing it with this kind of soulless 
and I don't want to be too harsh on it because there are aspects of it I like. I mean, as as a sculpture park, it almost kind of is interesting, but as a, as a neighborhood in a city, it just completely fails. In my earlier career, I used to work in Brazil, and um, I mean, it looks just like Brasilia, man. Like, <laughs> you know, yeah, Brasilia was yeah. was another yeah. planned community with this kind of this, you know, all built in the same era of like we can shape cities to be better than than what than what the dirty people have chosen to make you know it's fascinating it's right down to the side that you have that wavy um sidewalk pattern in the plaza that's kind of alternating black white i don't know if you if you noticed it there's a wavy sidewalk pattern which is very distinct in brazil and you know i kind of mentioned that the sidewalks in empire plaza are exactly like in brasilia and then someone's and in most of brazil and someone said that's actually that's actually something that was imported from portugal like, you know, the kind of where where these ideas kind of propagate and how, how a Portuguese sidewalk design ended up in the middle of Albany yeah. is just kind of fascinating, you know, which, which is why I love kind of walking towns and seeing stuff like that. And as you noted in that essay, it, the plaza was built largely because Nelson Rockefeller was embarrassed by the shabbiness of the city. But yet the plaza didn't really do much to address that. And, and it maybe even made the poverty around around downtown a lot worse by, you know, cutting neighborhoods off from each other. But, you know, they spent literally billions of dollars on this thing. And it's just kind of this monument to government, but it didn't really do much to improve the city. Your, your paper is the, the article I built the piece around. It's a really wonderful article that um, talks about um, the history of the, of the plaza and then kind of, you know, with, with wonder, I think there's 32 pictures in there that are just absolutely wonderful of kind of what, what came before. One of the things I wanted to do in the essay, but I didn't manage to literally across, I, I guess it's the the Western boundary. There's that massive tall white building that runs to a block. It's like a wall. It's like a fortress wall directly west of that wall. is just a beautiful oh. row homes. <laughs> right. Exactly. And so you get, you get a peek of what used to be there. I gather what was there was a very, very poor neighborhood, you know, of, of, of somewhat dilapidated row homes. The evolution might, might not have been those beautifully restored row homes because, you know, in some senses, I looked at a lot of those and those are filled with lobbyists. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, yeah. they are basically being fed by Empire State Plaza. But you go you go to Troy or you go to Waterville and you go to Cohoes. <laughs> yep, Cohoes, yep. You know, you, in, in Troy specifically has a lot of those where you can see what, what the neighborhood would have eventually evolved into had it not been kind of destroyed. Troy's interesting. It's an interesting con- contrast to Albany because whereas Albany was was hit pretty hard by urban renewal, Troy, for the most part, avoided it. I mean, it's one of the few cities I know of that doesn't have a major highway running through it. There there was some urban renewal kind of around kind of where Dinosaur Barbecue is now, if you know if you know where that yep, is. Yep. It's kind of a there's a little cleared away area there. But once you get into the city itself, it's it's largely untouched and it's really wonderful for that, I think. People don't like to think Troy is part of the Rust Belt, but Troy, Troy and Albany are basically at the, um, when you look at the largest, you know, the Rust Belt was driven by basically people taking grains <laughs> up to Green Bay and places like that. And then it, it propagating through the Great Lakes into Buffalo via the Erie Canal and ultimately ending up in Troy and then down the Hudson. So all that whole region, Troy, Albany is at kind of, is at the end of a, a kind of great economic chain that suffered a lot for the last you know, 200 years. Um, but yeah, I mean, Troy to me is a uh, Troy and Cohoes and Waterville. Like, you know, those are places I really, really like. And, 
you know, in, in the grand scheme of my walks all across the United States, it's, those are kind of three places that I kind of really stand out to me as kind of places I could live, you know, happily. You know? yeah, I sh- so I should say that you're writing on Substack. So anybody, the, the writing that we're talking about, anybody can can find, and it, it it's sub- no subscription fee, correct? That's correct. I'm I'm, I'm free right now. And um, you have a, a Troy essay coming. The Troy essay ended up being an essay about Empire State Plaza, which I apologize to Troy for. Maybe eventually, um, I I want to try to like do geographical diversity. Um, and, and I need to I need to move on in some senses um, to, to I don't want to overkill Albany, given how close I live. It's probably will be a few more essays about it because I do I do love I do love Troy and Cohoes and and, you know, I haven't really walked written about about them in particular. At some point, I'm probably I should probably walk from basically Albany to Schenectady. I haven't really spent much time in Schenectady. Yeah, that's another great city. And I think you'd find it really interesting, too. The great thing about Walking America, there's just so many options, man. After the break, we are getting into the holiday spirit, or spirits, I should say. You know, a Negroni is always popular, and Manhattan, of course, is a classic. Stay tuned. Hi, I'm Casey Seiler, editor of the Times Union. Join us for an ongoing discussion on major developments in the saga of Keith Raniere, co-founder of Nexium, the shadowy upstate New York organization at the center of the explosive federal investigation that resulted in Raniere's conviction on charges of extortion, sex trafficking, and more. We talk to former members of Nexium, discuss the latest news, and preview the likely next twists in this bizarre and disturbing story. You can find Nexium on trial at timesunion.com or wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome back. You're listening to The Eagle, a Times Union podcast. I'm Jessica Marshall. Well, the weather outside hasn't been too frightful lately, but the fire's pretty delightful. While we're still dealing with a pandemic, December of 2021 looks decidedly different and perhaps more festive than 2020. Many annual holiday traditions, events, and gatherings have resumed around the region. And right now, we're going to talk about something I love to indulge in at this time of year at those aforementioned activities. Delicious, elegant beverages. I reached out to Times Union dining critic Susie Davidson-Powell to get a taste of what's hot in cocktails and mocktails right now. Nothing really says holidays and cold weather to me right now like a nice hot toddy, but I know everybody else has has different uh, different things that they like to drink around the holidays. But let's start out with a couple of suggestions for really classic holiday drinks. You know, I think so many people get into a sort of seasonal mood and so they start thinking, oh, I'm going to have mulled wine or perhaps they're going with darker spirits, you know, so suddenly we're seeing all of the bourbon-based drinks, the rye whiskey drinks. You know, a Negroni is always popular. A Manhattan, of course, is a classic with, you know, usually with rye whiskey and a little sweet vermouth. If you're looking for something hot, like you were just saying, of course, you can have hot mulled wine or mulled cider with uh, perhaps some whiskey in that. 
but you know it's really flexible so a lot of it comes down to you know what's your personal preference on um profile if you like gin or vodka rum or whiskey what are some of the classic like rye whiskey winter type drinks like why had they come to be this this season's kind of drink <laughs> yeah well i mean of course alcohol in its own way is going to sort of warm you up um and certainly the darker spirits have more of a mouthfeel to them i mean when you're thinking about summery drinks you know whether it's a sparkling wine which of course works also around the holidays um but you know vodka based drinks tend to be lighter you know there are many spices that will also add to that warmth so sometimes you'll have you know clove and cinnamon and the types of ingredients you would use in cooking you know if you were making if you were baking something that felt seasonally inspired the same thing can happen with drinks or even you can fat wash your spirits so a say butter fat washed bourbon or or even olive oil these can actually create more of a mouthfeel that in its own way sort of makes you feel cozier and warmer you wouldn't really be wanting that creamier sensation in a drink in the summer how does that work exactly fat washing is that like you rub the glass or i'm i'm totally like that's the first <laughs> i've ever heard of this term and it's fascinating to me but like is that what you would do no actually you would melt you want to put um the melted butter into the liquor so you ah, would melt okay. the butter and put it into say whiskey or rum and then you're going to chill it in the freezer which of course it will solidify the fat and the mm -hmm. same can be done even with bacon fat so sometimes you'll see a bacon fat washed spirit usually again whiskey and then when it's cold you take it out and you remove the solids and then you're left with the flavor from it being in contact while it was warm Wow, that's fascinating. I've never heard of doing that before. I had heard of putting butter in your coffee, which I, I must say, initially, I was like, really? Why? But then, yeah, once you explain why it works. <laughs> you can add some spirits to that too then, right? So you can create, I mean, think about it. An Irish coffee, you mm -hmm. know, has, you know, the cream floating on the top, which I know that's not butter, but it's obviously a high fat content. And then obviously there's whiskey in that too. So many of these things, they all get different names but they take the same principles. Um, so, you know, that's to say you can just play around with some of the ingredients that you have. And, you know, oftentimes when you think about, say, sweeteners in drinks, the sweetener could be a simple syrup, which of course is equal part sugar and, and water, but it could be jam. And that's mm. something we're seeing more and more in cocktails where they're sort of incorporating some of the berry flavor profile, but they're using the sweetness from the jam. Tell me, what is your go-to drink for the winter season, for the holidays specifically? I'm an old-fashioned girl. I really love a good old-fashioned, but I also <laughs> will make that differently on different days, depending how I, what my mood is, I guess. So sometimes I'll use a maple bourbon, mm -hmm. and um, sometimes I will make it, you know, the standard way with a sugar cube. And sometimes I'll do, you know, what purists would say is the wrong way to do it, which is <laughs> to, um, you know, if I have a clementine or a satsuma, some sort of orange, which I generally do have in the house, um, mm -hmm. I might muddle that, you know, actually crush it down. But if I do that, I will definitely reduce 
you know, the sugar content because this, the fruit is adding sweetness to the drink anyway. So I don't want my old fashioned to be sweet. I just sometimes play with flavor. That sounds delicious. Now, an old-fashioned, what are the basics of that? Well, an old-fashioned is basically bourbon, usually. It can be rye. And then you have a sugar cube that you crush and, and muddle. And then it's just some Angostura bitters and orange peel. And you're expressing the orange peel by twisting it to get the oils released. You can rub that around the rim of the glass and drop it in. Do you want to give just one example of a like a fun non-alcoholic drink? That takes people out of just the water or the soda or the juice. You know, people have options. You can go with a low alcohol or no alcohol, right? Now, no alcohol, of course, you can simply do things like soda water with either a shrub or a fruit juice. But also there are a lot of products out there that are worth looking at because, you know, I think most people by now have heard of Seedlip, which is a non-alcoholic distilled spirit. And you basically use that as you would like a gin or a vodka, but it's completely non-alcoholic. It's botanically based. With that, you would either add tonic water or soda. There's another one called Proto, um, which is this fabulous, beautiful bottle, comes in great packaging. And this was um, developed by actually the former beverage director of Chef David Chang's restaurant group, Momofuku. And it, it really is an amazing drink because it's sort of, um, it's this deep, deep ruby red and it has ingredients like fig vinegar, chrysanthemum, black pepper, licorice root, hibiscus, all of those things give wow. it incredible mouthfeel. Yeah, it's a lot like drinking red wine of some sort or really because of its more herbal spicy, savory properties. It's very much like an, a digestif, like an amaro, and you know, which is the Italian botanical liqueur. So that's something you can drink by itself over ice, or you can warm it up like a hot toddy. And it definitely feels more grown up, um, like an alternative to alcohol without trying to mimic alcohol. Sounds delicious and very elegant. Yeah. And then, you know, there are other things that if you just want to keep the alcohol level really low and you can absolutely keep it like down into the low, low percentages, you know, you can um, use something like a fortified wine like Dubonnet or even Sherry or a, a brandy and then top that up predominantly with soda. Basically, Italian Amari, these herbal liqueurs are already low in alcohol. And they're very, very, um, you know, they have this dark, aromatic flavor to them. And so if you're topping that up with soda, this is not at all a high alcohol um, drink. And in fact, that, that's why pre-made ones and pre-packaged ones that you'll find in cans can be shipped all over the U.S. because they're not rated the same way as wine by itself or spirits by themselves because the alcohol content is so low. Oh, Interesting. So you've definitely given me a ton of ideas for the holidays. I'm really excited. Um, I love that feeling of kind of, you know, it's cold out. Maybe it's snowing. I'm at a holiday party with friends and family. Um, and then just having this really elegant drink to kind of nurse as I go about my evening having fun. It just, it's just a lovely, a lovely image. So thank you for, for giving us suggestions for that. Absolutely. I hope you find one that you absolutely love and tell us what it is. All right, that's it for this week. I'm Jessica Marshall. 
We will be taking a short break from the podcast for the holidays, but don't worry, we'll be back in January with another look inside the newsroom here at the Times Union. So happy holidays. But in the meantime, check us out on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and Instagram, or head over to timesunion.com for the latest news and features. The Eagle is a production of the Times Union. It's produced and edited by me, Jessica Marshall, with help from the Times Union digital team and the newsroom. Special thanks this week to Casey Seiler, Brendan Lyons, Rachel Silberstein, Chris Churchill, and Susie Davidson-Powell for their contribution to this episode. And special thanks as well to WMHT and New York Now for the use of sound from their reporting.